Hello, I'm Sam Ingalls, and you're listening to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast channel. I'm very pleased today to be joined by Dom Morley. Dom is a Grammy Award-winning engineer and producer who's worked with Adele, Sting, Amy Winehouse, Phil Spector, Tony Visconti, and many more big names. Dom also shares his experience through a business called The Mix Consultancy, where you can upload your mixes and get his feedback. Dom's worked with a lot of great singers, and in this podcast, I'm going to be talking to him about recording and mixing vocals, the most important element of any pop song. So hello, Dom. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks very much for having me. So let's start by talking about tracking. And in the case of vocals in particular, a good engineer needs to have both technical skills and what we call soft skills. You don't want to bore the singer to death by shooting out 15 different preamps on their voice, but you want to get the best sound possible. So how do you handle that kind of balancing act? Uh, well, the thing is to, I think the, there's a twofold thing, and you're right, there's there's a technical angle to it, and there's also a soft angle to it. And I think the, the technical angle is is to have a rough idea of what you're going to do first. So like you say, like 15 preamps is crazy. Um, ideally, break it down to a couple of different things that you want to swap out, a couple of different things you want to change, maybe a couple of preamps, a couple of mics, have an idea of what you're going to go in with um, before you start. Um, but then the soft angle is to to introduce the idea to the singer is we want to get the best possible sound on you. So we're just going to try a few things in order to do that. So they they you know they're invested in the idea. They obviously want you to get a really good sound. And so so long as you sort of introduce it in that way, rather than I'm just going to do a lot of technical things now. Um, we just want to get the best sound from you. So if you can sing the same thing into a few different mics, you know I'm going to swap a couple of things around. And if they're that way inclined, not everybody is as, as into sound and audio as you, but if they are, get them involved in the decision-making process and, you know, okay, let's have a listen, see what you think, and discuss, you know, this one's more present, this one's got more body. Um, you know, for this song, we're going to be singing in a higher register, so maybe the additional body that we get from this mic is going to be uh, is going to help us out a little bit. You know, those kind of things that you can discuss with them. So it becomes you know, a positive part of the process that everyone's involved in rather than you being a dullard and, and doing your technical thing. Um, I think that's the way you can sort of make it. Well, that's certainly what, what I do and, and and everyone's generally been quite engaged with it when I've done it and, and appreciated you putting the effort into to get the best out of them and their sound. So do you have favourite mics and preamps that you would usually take as a starting point for this process? Um... Is this like a wish list of the most perfect situation ever, or is this what have I got in my studio that I use? Because <laughs> um, like, uh, like so, Mike Pre's, I've got, um, I've got a Telefunken V seventy two. I've got a pair of those which I absolutely love. Um, it's just great valve Mike Pre's, um, and I've got something called a Wonder Audio PA four, which is Wonder Audio is very, very nevy. Um, it's very big sounding Nevi. So th those are sort of two that I tend to use for a vocal. One of those two will definitely work or always has done so far. Um, and if you're going into mics, I mean, I, I'll hire something in if it isn't, if there isn't something that, that I think is the right thing. Um, so if you're going to the sort of the dream mic club, well, you know what I'd say? The U67 by, by Norman, I've never put that up and been disappointed. It's one of those mics that just always works. Um, so Neumann's are sort of quite a 
a go-to choice for me. The the Val 47 or the FET 47 are both really good as well. Um, I recently bought something called a, a Perlman TM1, which is really interesting. It's it's sort of based on that kind of idea of the Neumanns, but it's you know new modern mic, which is also a good thing. Um, there's something great about vintage gear, but the problem is when it doesn't work, you've got to sort it out. Whereas if you've just bought something, A, it probably will work, and B, if it doesn't, you can just call the guy up and say, this isn't working, and then they fix it for you. So there's some there's quite a lot of joy in that as well. So um, yeah, those are the ones that I've been using lately and that would be my go-tos. Uh, but you know, it doesn't really... You know, I can say what what works for me, but if you're you know if you're recording in your studio, you know, go with what you've got, and I think the the key would be to have a couple of choices. You know, if you can afford to get two or three different condensers, or you know, a condenser like maybe an Aston, you know, they make some really good condensers for a really you know ridiculous price, considering how good they are, um, and like an SM7, and a lot of people enjoy that Shure mic that's. Um, that's quite good for vocals and and a decent price. So there's there's two very different flavors that you've got there. If you've got say an Aston Spirit and an SM7, then you've got two different flavors of vocal. One of those is probably going to suit a, a singer's voice more than another one. So get a couple of those, and if you can afford to get a couple of different pre's as well, then you've given yourself a load of flavors. So you can try out a few different things and. One of them is going to work better with uh, with your singer's voice than the other combinations you've got. So that's all I say, really. I mean, you know, I've got my favourites, but you'll have yours, and and really the key is choices. I think that's that's the best way you can go into it. And do you typically EQ and compress the vocal as it's going to disc, or do you leave that till the mix? Uh, a little bit, um, yeah, a little bit. Uh, you know, I'll do. Um, you know, maybe a touch of 10k on a vocal, maybe filter off the bottom just up to about 40 hertz or something, just a little bit of niceness on it really. And then if I'm compressing, I'll be taking off a dB or two at most. Um, just uh, the idea being really is it's kind of more effective to have, if you want to be subtle about your compression, you know, it's great if you want to sort of blast something with a compressor and be very compressed but if you want to be subtle about your compression to do a little bit of compression with a few different compressors ends up having a more subtle sound to it than if you take off the same amount of you know db of compression with one compressor doing the whole thing so often with you know with recording i'll just have i'll just have it kind of tickling a compressor a little bit of eq just to nicen it up but no major cuts and and blasting of anything so that I've still got a lot of options afterwards it's partly as well because I'm I'm almost always producing and engineering at the same time therefore I try and get the engineering bit of it done if you know what I mean quite quickly have that set up and I know that that's kind of in a good place um, and then I can concentrate on producing from then on and just working with the singer and getting a, a great performance out of them without constantly having to see where the compressor is at and, you know, what's going on with that. So it's, you know, partly a, uh, a function of convenience as much as, as, much as sound and, and being able to have two hats on at the same time. And how much work do you do on the vocal sound that the artist is actually hearing in their headphones while they're recording? Um, yeah, well, I'll sort of I'll get a mix set up with you know I'll put the headphones on and get the the rough mix set up for them to hear. I won't do much on the signal chain for them. I just you know some nice reverb in the right place, um, just a bit of a vocal plate or something like that is normally a good start. 
and and then hand it over and talk about the mix. Uh, you know, ask them, uh, ask them, is it okay? Uh, do you need more of your vocal? Uh, are you getting enough of the drums? You know, because they're obviously going to need that rhythm. So just make them, I'm asking questions because I want to make sure I've got it right and it's as good as it can be, but also to make sure they're having a little think about it when they hear it and, and make sure it is, they're thinking, what do I need? What do I want to hear? And then, you know, you know that then you've got them in the right place in terms of, terms of the vocal i won't over process on the way in i just want it to kind of sound you know kind of sound a bit like their voice really you know sound a bit natural because you know it's a weird thing singing with headphones on and you know it can be quite um can be quite uh isolating or can just sound quite odd so as natural as i can make it for for the singer then i think that puts them in a in a more relaxed frame of mind before they kick off and do you have a preference as to whether the singer is in a vocal booth or out on the main live room floor or in the control room with you while they're recording? Yeah, I do. Control room with me every time. I actually, in my studio, I don't have a booth. I didn't bother doing one because I don't like it. Um, I really like to be in the room with people when they're recording because, you know, as a producer, we're, we, you know, we'll be discussing the performance and discussing the lyric and, and everything else. Um and I, I think that conversation is much better had taking the headphones off and having a chat between two people, you know, at the moment, you know, a socially distanced area apart. Um, but once they're in another room and you're talking over the, the talk back, which always sounds a bit weird and tinny, um, you've, you've left a little bit of the humanity aside there for the, for the technical. And I try and do that as little as possible. So... So yeah, I definitely have someone in the control room with me if I can, because you know I, I'll put headphones on. Control room's a treated room, you know it sounds it sounds fine in there. Um, so yeah, that would always be my my preference if I could. And from a production perspective, do you prefer to track vocals as the last major element in a production, or do you like to get them done earlier on? I am. I do tend towards the yeah the last thing, and it's it comes down to the kind of headphone mix idea that I want them to hear in order to deliver the vocal. That's the, that's the more challenging of the performances that are going to be on the record. It's the most personal and it involves the human body as an instrument. So I want them to have as much, you know, going for them as possible and having the track feeling as completed as possible rather than just, you know, drums and a couple of rough guitar takes. Having as completed a track as possible is going to put them... I think in a better psychological position to really deliver the performance because they're riding on the back of a load of already delivered performances and they've got a clearer idea of how their record's going to finally sound. So, yeah, I try and leave it as late as I can in terms of the recording process so they've really got the best, the best backing to sing on top of. So as a producer, to what extent do you get into guiding and coaching the singer? Do you offer them a lot of advice while they're recording their parts? Uh, a lot. I do that. That I th I really feel that's my responsibility. And I know different producers do different things. You know, obviously, I was an assistant for quite a few years in a big studio, and I saw a whole range of vocal production from guidance on every word, literally, to um, you, the leader vocal would be okay. Do three takes, and you know, I'll pick one. Uh, so there's there's a whole range in there. But I'm definitely more of the hands-on thing. I see myself as like I'm ground zero audience. I'm listener number one. And so I have a chat before we do the vocal to make sure I understand what the lyric is about and the emotion that we're, you know, that we're supposed to be delivering, that I'm supposed to be feeling as a listener. Um, 
So, you know, we can get quite deep into the song while we're discussing that and why it was written and, and what it's about, the story behind it. Um, so from that, I then sit there listening to the performance and making sure I can feel what I'm supposed to be feeling. And if I don't, then, you know, we'll go and we'll have another go and I'll discuss how that one felt. And maybe this next one should be a bit more, I don't know, vulnerable, fragile. You know, I've got a whole whole gamut of um, of adjectives that I can go through to describe how how it could feel next time round. And eventually you find one that means the thing to them that you need. And then they perform that, you know, that, that way that that emotion that adjective um and then you get the feeling as the listener that's how we discussed i should feel when i heard this and now i do so then i know i've done you know we've done the right thing and we can we can carry on like that so yeah i definitely coached them through um through the performance uh just from the perspective of me needing to hear what they've said the song is about i kind of like the idea that imagine somebody's listening to this song and they don't speak a word of the language you're singing in, do we think they still understand what the song's about? That's kind of what I want to to feel like that's probably happening. So that's sort of the, the end goal that I'm trying to feel. So if the artist has got a home studio at home and they're recording their own vocals and they're more comfortable doing it that way, how do you make sure you still have that production input? Yeah, fortunately that's never happened to me because I'd find that a bit difficult, to be honest. Because <laughs> then I'm not really producing anything, I'm just choosing takes or something you know and and I do you know go through quite a lot of guidance during a vocal and I do feel a bit bad sometimes I know I push vocalists to emotionally deliver which can be quite draining but um but it always works you know at the end of the day they hear back the the vocal that they've done and and despite the fact that I sort of feel a bit guilty that I've pushed them quite hard they hear that they've done something great and that really does connect and 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 was very well performed um, so I've never been in that situation, fortunately. If somebody suggested that, I would, I would try quite hard to to dissuade them of that idea. Um, but I guess you know, if 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 someone had a need that they they couldn't perform in front of people, I know that it can be very difficult for some people. If they couldn't do it, then I would just have to say, um, to, let's talk about the song. You know, let's talk about the emotion because when you're discussing the song beforehand, like I'm obviously trying to learn as much as I can about how I'm supposed to feel, but also that you know the singer's getting in the frame of mind by by going through the story again and going through explaining what it's about. They are they're doing that themselves too to an extent, so they're putting themselves back in the frame of mind they were when they wrote it. So I'd certainly encourage them to think about that and maybe write something down about it so they're definitely processing it before before they got into the performance and then um, and then just take the time and and do a load of takes send it to me and I'll I'll um you know I'll work out you know, what what grabs me and listen through to them and sort of after the fact see what makes me feel the way I'm supposed to feel and if somebody else has recorded a project that you're going to mix what instructions do you give them about preparing the vocal tracks uh, the, the the same as with everything, really. Just just give me the the sort of clean tracks and like I, all the EQ and compression I can do myself, and reverbs and delays I can do myself. Um, and I'd rather you know do that myself. Um, the only thing I do say is if you you know when people are, are getting stuff ready to send to me to mix is if there's a sound you know an effect or something that's absolutely integral you know to to the sound like you need that vocal to sound 
that particular way. And it's normally like, you know, a heavily affected thing in the middle eight or, you know, BV that's got some weird stuff going on with it. Then definitely send me it with everything. Um, but if you can send me a raw version as well, um, if I need to make some changes or, or do a slightly adjusted version of that, then I can kind of, you know, I can play with it and get somewhere in between. So, yeah, the, the, the generally I just want the, the raw file as, as it's recorded and it's only if there's a particularly bizarre effect that is necessary that um, that I'd go. It's, it's The way to see it, I think, is really is like if you, you know, if you recorded your guitar through a bunch of pedals because that's the guitar sound you want, then great, that's what I want to be mixing. But um, but if if that isn't the case, then then just give me the raw file. But you'd always expect to be sent the comped lead vocal. You'd never ask for all the raw takes so that you could comp the vocal yourself at the mix stage. No, not for mixing. For mixing, I need the comped final version because um, that's really getting into you know you're getting well into production territory if you're if you're comping the lead vocal or comping anything really mixing should be about mixing and getting everything to sound together and pushing it forward and making it all sound like a record um choosing the vocal takes is something that you you should have done before you got to the mixing stage so now I definitely um I definitely be expecting that to all have been done before I got it so what's your approach to creating a composite performance? Do you like to record multiple takes of the whole thing and then edit them afterwards? Or do you work through stage by stage doing each verse and chorus separately? Well, um, that's kind of a combination of the, the methods, really, because when I'm recording, I normally start by doing a couple of takes of the whole thing, which is about warming up and, and getting a sense of the, the sort of arc of the song uh, for both of us, really, for me and the singer. And then... And then we do a load of takes where we'll just focus on a section. So we'll just do a verse and then we'll do a load of takes of a verse until I feel like we've really, you know, we've nailed it and we've got a great version of each line. And then we'll move on to the next verse or the chorus, to, you know, depending on how, how things work. Like if the chorus is particularly loud and might be a strain on the voice, we'll probably do the verses first, work through all of those, then go back and do the choruses. So I don't find out we sort of exhausted the voice before you know, by doing the first chorus really well and then comes to second verse and can't quite deliver. Um, so, yeah, I, I do a combination of doing the whole thing and then doing little bits. And then once I'm kind of confident that we've got everything we need, then I'll comp it. And it'll only be, we might, it doesn't happen very often, but occasionally we might go back to do a line or two if I just don't think we've quite got a great version of that line. Um, but I generally... You know, generally it will be we've done enough takes and I've kind of got an eye on us having everything that we need and we've pushed it through to the end so that the comp, I know the comp's going to be, you know, the final thing and it's going to be good. So we've got good performances, well recorded. Let's turn our attention to the mix. Mm -hmm. uh, what order do you tackle things in? Because some engineers like to get the backing track pretty much mixed before they introduce the vocals. Other people will start with the vocals. I actually, I do a hybrid. So... um I sort of, I logically think um, drums first, you know, kick drum with an eye on what the bass is doing, snare drum, hi-hat, rest of the drums, and then you've kind of got your, you know, the the top, bottom, and mid of your mix has kind of been defined by the, the kick, the hi-hats and cymbals, and the snare. So I, I do that, and then I add the bass, and then I add the instruments. But obviously the vocal, if you're working on a song, a vocal is, you know, the most important thing. I did once hear it described as... Uh, sort of like people listen to 
the vocal and 50% everything else. And I think that's probably fairly accurate as to what people concentrate on when they're listening to a record. Uh, so the vocal is hugely important. So what I actually do is I start by listening to the vocal um, and I kind of do a little bit of an EQ sweep and try and find where the really kind of present frequency of the vocal is. There's normally something between about 1.5K and 3K where when you give it a little boost, it sounds like the singer's stepped towards you. And that I sort of think that's the important frequency of their voice. That's where their presence is. And then, so I know where that is. So say it's like, I don't know, arguably 2K. When I'm then going back and mixing the track and getting all the backing track done and getting all the instruments in, I know there needs to be a 2K hole in pretty much everything so that when I put the vocal in, it's not fighting and it's got its own space and it sits comfortably. So I sort of I'm doing it both ways because I'm finding where the vocal needs to be at the beginning, but I'm then building the mix from the bottom up and 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 starting with the music. And I do flick the vocal in while I'm doing it. You know, I'm I'm making my 2K or wherever it is whole. Um, I'm got the drums in, I have got the bass in. You know, I think they're sounding pretty good. And then I throw the vocal in and make sure there's no immediate kind of oh no, that's clashing there. I need to make some space there. You know, so I kind of. I do a hybrid process that means I'm constantly checking that the vocal works, but then I only really work on it when I've got everything else in. Um, I just know I've already kind of punched a hole through the mix to let it sit nicely already. And do you have stored templates or presets that you recall as a starting point for a vocal sound, or do you like to start from a, a blank slate every time? Yeah, I've sort of I find this quite a funny, um, funny question. Only in that I I think no. Uh, and if I've uh, if I've been asked this before, I say no, I don't have any um, like presets because I don't. I don't save any kind of this is a vocal preset, this is a, a something or other. Uh, with the thing in my head that I want to come at everything new and fresh, you know, I want to have um, a different perspective every time I I approach a project. I mean, I'll ha I'll obviously have one across an album. Like there'll be a vocal processing chain that works on a on a on a record, and and I'll want a consistency of sound across that. But there won't be one that I'll then pull up from an old record or a different artist and use on this one. I want to start something new. So I say that, but then I do have go-tos, you know, and that obviously ends up being part of your sound and what you do. So um, like I like DBX compressors on things that have bass in, so the bass and the kick will probably have something DBX-y on it. Um, I like 1176s for guitars and... And I have a valve compressor I use a lot on vocals. And, you know, there's a whole series of things that I normally do. So there's there's an element that I'm kind of <laughs> going the long way around where I'm not saving any presets or anything, but I am pulling up the same thing most of the time and starting with that to see if that does what I want it to do. So it's kind of, a, again, it's a bit of a hybrid maneuver where I'm I, I'm not saving myself time by having presets, but I'm kind of going with... A similar starting point but i think perhaps you know i'm by going through that route i like to think i'm although i'm starting with something i'm i'm coming at it fresh with an idea of well i'll try this but i'm i'm ready to ditch it very quickly if it isn't the right thing and i'll try something different it sounds as though your own mix setup is very much a hybrid one as well with uh, analog processing integrated into a digital system yeah definitely yeah i've got um so I run Pro Tools um, that is the DAW through some Bell converters into a, a Neve line mixer, the 8816. Um, yeah, if you don't mind me talking about gear a little bit, I'll try and keep it to a minimum. But that's kind of the process of, of everything coming out. So 
so Pro Tools is doing all the automation, so all the levels and the and all that sort of stuff comes through Pro Tools. But then I have a bunch of uh, hardware inserts that I can plug into Pro Tools, and I've got quite a bit of outboard gear, so I use uh, I use that quite a lot um, during a mix. So it will be a mixture of outboard compression and EQ. Um, there's a line mix of putting everything together and DOW doing the rest, really. And do you think that analog EQ and compression still makes a significant difference from a sonic point of view? Um, I think it's one of those things where I remember learning at school, I did a psychology A-level, there's something called Gestalt, which is the the sum is greater than the... No, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts is the idea. And it's like, you know, there, there's a little difference if you're using that outboard... Yeah, DBX compressor. I think it sounds a little bit better than when you use the plug-in one. Although the plugins, you know, are very good these days. You know, I've been doing this since since before we had DAWs, you know, so I've gone through the whole arc of of starting to use plugins and, and them sounding absolutely awful. And then we're now in a position where they sound really good. Um but I find when I've used a lot of analog gear in a mix, there's something at the end of it that just sounds a bit more 3D than if I haven't. So I think this it still has an edge being able to get a fair chunk of analog stuff going in your mix. And for me, you know, this is what works for me and everybody's got a different process and everybody's got a different sound, but the sound that I generally, you know, end up with is better if I've used a chunk of analog stuff in the process. So, yeah, that's what works for me. One thing that I think new engineers often find quite confusing and difficult is setting up compressors for a particular source. Is there a particular way that you like to set up a compressor on a vocal in terms of the time constants and the ratio and that sort of thing? Um, I tend to do, I guess I'll start with, I mean, all these things are always like a starting point and then I tweak, you know, depending on whether I like it or not really. So I'd start with a sort of, four to one kind of level on it and you know ratio and then a fast release and a slow attack so i normally start with actually fastest release slowest attack and then pull back the attack um till it's catching it in a way i want it to catch you know what i mean so it might be that with a really slow attack it's it's not doing a lot um and then i'll just I'll just adjust it until it's it's punching in the right way, and that's that's the place where I'll set the attack. So I start off with fast release, slow attack, and then generally pull the attack back till. I've, I can't think of any times I've got much much further back than sort of midway. Tend to that tends to be as far back as I go with a vocal, unless I'm doing some sort of effect, you know, unless I want it to sound over compressed. But if I'm just wanting it to sound nice and punchy, that's generally where I'll be. So it sounds as though you're using compression on vocals primarily for its sonic effect rather than as a means of controlling the dynamics. Yeah, now th- this is one area where I can occasionally get a bit ranty. But if you'll bear with me, like obviously feel free to edit this out if this is me just being ranty, right? But um, back in the old days when compressors first came out, it was the dynamic control that was such a joy because... Uh, you know, things were going live to radio and and it was just somebody's performance and there was no way of controlling these things. So you used to have a guy that was a gain engineer and he had just had fast reactions and he sat there trying to control the level out of the desk because the level coming in could be quite erratic. And then compressors came along and everyone's like, finally, 
we've got a way that's faster than a human being that can control these levels and stop this kind of erratic um, erratic volume shift happening so that our our broadcasts are smoother. So that all makes sense. And then, and then, as the years and decades have gone on, you know, they've they've had this great job, and and they've been great at controlling dynamics. And then, and then, people found that you could have attack and release controls. And then it wasn't just about controlling dynamics, but you could actually shape a sound and make it more punchy or less punchy with these controls. So then, compressors had sort of two jobs, as you say. There's the the dynamic, or there's the sort of sonic job that they can do. And now we're in an area where everything pretty much is being recorded into DAWs and you can automate literally everything. And that's a much better way of controlling the dynamic range of something is to actually get into the automation and control the dynamic range that way. And it's actually not a very good use of a compressor these days. You should, I think, you should really just be reaching for your compressor to do the the punchy thing, to do the controlling of the sonics and sort of shaping the envelope of your sound rather than just saving you from doing some automation now obviously there's there's a time thing in it and if you are someone who's got to get mixes out quickly then you know putting a compressor to do some of that job for you makes a lot of sense because it saves you you know an hour or two of of doing automation but but if you know if time's on your side then that's a better way of doing it is to just use automation to do the dynamic control and use a compressor to do the uh, to do the control the punch uh, in which case you know you do as a bit of a tip for that if anyone thinks they want to try it um do the volume automation on your vocal uh, get that sitting where you want in a kind of even performance and obviously with performance some bits are supposed to be louder and some bits are supposed to be quieter because that's how they've been performed but you're controlling the kind of the bits that are jumping out in a way that you don't want them to so do that and then route that to another channel and put the compressor on that channel that you've routed to so the compression is coming after the volume automation uh, the other way to do it would be if you use clip automation um i know I, I know that's in tools i think logic does the same thing where you can just grab a little bit of the audio separate it out and turn that little bit down or up um, depending on what you need and then you can just put the compressor on that channel because that'll be happening after clip automation so those are two different ways of doing it but i would urge people to try that and see the difference that it makes it's it's a longer process it's more time consuming but i think you're really sort of pushing production to where it should be these days where you're using things the tools that we have available to us to do their best job and are you drawing in this automation data with a mouse or do you have a fader-based control surface that you use to enter it? I'm drawing it in with a mouse. Um, I keep on thinking, oh, I should buy a fader controller, and then I don't. So <laughs> maybe one day I will, and then I'll get used to doing it that way. But I do just, yeah, I am just drawing it in. There's always, you know, I, I again, I'm as old as the hills, so uh, I remember when you you didn't have the option of seeing the waveform. So you would be doing automation by moving a fader on, you know, an SSL or an EVE or something, um, and you had to react. So you sort of knew when the loud bit was coming, but I always thought that there's a little bit of a lag in doing the rides that you're doing on a fader because you're you're reacting to it happening. There's There's got to be a little bit of a delay, um, whereas there isn't if you draw it in. So, you know, I sort of, I think perhaps that's, that's a better way of doing it because there isn't a lag between you hearing something and turning it down, if you know what I mean. 
I think another thing that a lot of new engineers struggle with is the order of processing, uh, and in particular, whether they should put their EQ before their compressor in the signal chain or after. Uh, is that something you have strong feelings about? Uh, not as strong as I do about the compression, but um, but what I would say is uh, you want the compressor... My, my sort of theory on it is I want the compressor to be compressing the things that I want to be there. Um, so... You know, if if the sound is quite muddy and I know I don't want that to be in the sound, then I don't want that to be affecting the compressor either. You know, I don't want it to be compressing uh, based on it hearing some frequencies that I don't want it to consider because I don't think they should be part of the final sound. So I'll quite often do some sort of subtractive EQ before a compressor um, and then do the additive EQ afterwards. Because on the other hand, if I want to push a frequency, then if I push it into the compressor, the compressor is going to be working harder based on that frequency. And I don't necessarily want it to do that. So it's pretty normal for me to have an EQ on either side of the compressor. I'll have something kind of functional and surgical and, and um, you know, taking away frequencies before the compressor. And then I'll have something, you know, what I'd consider a slightly posher EQ, you know, your more expensive CPU hungry plugins maybe um, would be after the compressor and that would be, you know, boosting the top end or whatever it is you want to do. And to what extent do you tune vocals using Melodyne or Autotune or tools like that? And do you do that as part of the production process or do you consider that part of the mix process? Uh, for me, that's definitely, that's part of the production. So um, when I'm comping a vocal, for example, I would do, I do a whole comp, I do the whole thing, um, and then I go in after. And, and here's an interesting exercise, um, which is worth doing if you do a lot of, you know, automate. Um, sorry, it's worth doing if you do a lot of tuning. Is if you get your vocal comp uh, as it is raw, untuned, then tune it completely, so start to finish, and then go through and listen to each line, tuned and untuned, and see which you prefer. And you find the loss of humanity in the tuned version is probably more than you thought it was. Uh, so I'll, I'll often do that process where I'll, I'll have a completely tuned, completely untuned. Now, the thing to be aware of is if something is tuned, um, it's easier to mix. It sits in the mix better than something that isn't tuned. But I would rather work a bit harder as a mixer and have a more raw, impassioned human performance to work with than to have something that is easy to mix but ultimately doesn't grab people as emotionally as, you know, a, a more raw performance. So I do a bit of tuning. It's not a lot, and it tends to be only when I notice, you know, the, the tuning grabs my attention rather than performance, if you know what I mean. So if a note has gone off significantly, then I'll notice that and think, ooh, and then I'll tune that note because that's grabbed my attention. But um, But I think I'm a bit more lacks perhaps than a lot of people uh making pop records simply because i i want people to feel it more than i want it to sound correct um I, you know that that sort of niceness is not as important to me as as an emotional connection so i will leave things if uh if they're making me feel stuff better if that makes sense so i feel stuff better it's a terrible attempt at english but i think you know what i mean well let's talk a little bit about effects how do you go about choosing a reverb or a delay that will suit a particular voice or production? Mm, that's a good question because I 
don't really have much of an answer to it. I, it's it's kind of just how I feel on it, really. I'll put things up and, you know, I guess with a vocal, as that's what we're talking about, I, I generally go for plates or halls. That's normally what I would do. Um, and I just kind of, I just throw a few up. I'm using the Seventh Heaven plugin, which is the Bricasti M7 kind of thing. Um, I use that a lot. I use the PSP make some really nice reverb plugins and Sonox reverb I got recently as well, which is really nice too. So I generally, I bounce between those guys and I'll find something that just sounds to me like it fits. Um, and then the only thing I think that's, you know, an interesting thing that some people may not use or, or be aware of is the use of pre-delay when you're doing, um, you know, when you're putting a, a big reverb on a vocal. When you've got reverb on something, you're obviously putting it in a certain space, and the more reverb you put on it, the further back into that space something can get pushed. Uh, but where pre-delay can help you is it sort of has an effect of um, bringing the the object that's got the reverb on, so in this case a vocal, uh, bringing it forward. So if you have, say, I mean, I, I'll just give a ballpark, start with an 80 millisecond pre-delay and then sort of play from there if you've got that on a vocal on the reverb and then you add more reverb to the vocal it sounds like the space that the the singer is in is getting bigger but the singer is staying close to you and singing so it doesn't push them back into the space it just makes the space behind them larger so that's quite a nice effect to use if you are if you're wanting to make something sound big and you've got space in the track for that much reverb to make it sound that big then um it, it enables you to take advantage of that, but without losing the the singer at the back of the hall, if you know what I mean. So, um, yeah, that's something that I'll quite often play with. And um, and other than that, just not being afraid to EQ, you know, your reverbs and delays, do that a lot, um, because the chances of the preset you, you, that you pull up being exactly right for your mix is very small. So expect to EQ that just you, like you'd EQ anything else that you put into a mix. Uh, and in terms of delays, it's something that I normally have two or three of them going on um, on a mix, and I'll just, you know, I'll choose between them, and they'll be automated. So there'll normally be one that's a kind of like one that will come in at the end of a line, you know, I'll drop a word into it at the end of a line, and then that will be used to kind of help add some interest. If there's not, nothing going on for a couple of beats, then that little delay will be the interesting thing that's happening at that moment. And then there'll be another delay that I'll probably use, say, in the chorus, just to add a little bit of extra kind of depth and interest in the chorus. So, yeah, there's a few little things that I do like that. Um, delays I use more for interest um, than space. Um, but, you know, nothing set in stone. I'll, 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 I'll do something different probably the next time I do a mix. But that's kind of, you know, my starting points. And when you use delays, are they usually synchronised to the tempo of the song? Yeah, yeah, generally, yeah. Um, occasionally I might do one that, that if I'm doing a particularly, de you know, deciding this is going to be a weird effect, then I'll unsync it and just edge it off a little bit. So, you know, maybe make it come a little bit earlier so it sounds like it's rushing and really pulling, you know, adding urgency. Or if you do it later, then it adds a bit of groove and swing to it. So I might do that, but um, obviously with a delay, it means you can't do too many repeats before you get into chaos in in that area if you're off sync so um just being aware of the the balancing act on that 
And so far we've been talking about lead vocals, which are obviously the most important part of almost any production. Uh, but backing vocals are also pretty important. Uh, does everything you've said so far apply to those as well, or, or do you do things differently there? Yeah, it's interesting with the backing vocals because they, uh, they're they sort of a halfway house between you know the lead and, and another one of the instruments in the in the arrangement. So it's kind of, I do sort of treat it slightly differently, but some things need to be the same because it's still a voice. So some of your basic kind of, I'll filter it up to about 70, 80 hertz because there's nothing usable down there. I'll probably put, you know, a bit of a 10K shelf boost on it to add a bit of air to the top. You know, things like that I'm probably going to do on a BV as much as I do on a lead. But that vocal presence area that I talked about a bit earlier, you know, wherever that might be on the lead vocal, I'll be making a hole in the BV in that area, just like I'm doing in the guitars and, and, and the keyboards and everything else. So so there's sort of like a bit of a middle ground between it needing to uh, needing to fit around the lead vocal just like the instruments do, but also, uh, you know, it's a voice, so it needs to be treated in the same way, um, same way as the voice. And and reverb and, and delay-wise, I'm likely to be treating it more as an instrument that's backing up the lead. Because ultimately, that's what it's there for, you know. It's to back up the lead in the same way that your keyboard parts are backing up the lead vocal and everything else in a song is there to deliver the song. So so I'll, I'll you know, I'll be approaching it in the mix in terms of this is something to support the lead vocal. Um, but there are obviously some technicalities about the fact it is a vocal and therefore I need to treat it to some extent like one. Wow, well, thanks ever so much, Dom. That's been absolutely fascinating. I've learned a great deal from talking to you, and I'm sure our listeners will have as well. Just before we go, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your business, The Mix Consultancy. Uh, yeah, thanks. I, I get to do a shameless plug as well, which is obviously great. Um, it's Yeah, it's basically... It's, I, I'm aware uh, I was very lucky in how I got into the industry in that I, I worked in a big studio... There were a lot of, you know, some of the world's best... You, you mentioned the world's best engineers and producers and stuff. You mentioned at the beginning some of the people I was lucky enough to work with. And, and I learned an awful lot from that. Now, I also am aware that a lot of studios have closed down in the 20 years, 20-odd 20 years I've been doing this. So those opportunities are getting rarer and rarer. But I, I still think it's really important that people learn from, from other people that have done it before and have got, you know, some a few years of experience on them so a few years ago i started getting involved in education i i um i tutor the ma course at uh, leeds college of music i do a lot of guest lectures around universities talking about various aspects of production and mixing and things uh, but what i wanted to do is i wanted to make it accessible for anybody to be able to get better at, at doing what we do with you know some people don't have the the time or the funds to get into, you know, a, a two-year course or a one-year course or any kind of permanent education situation. Most people won't get a chance to get a job in a studio. So how do you access the experience of other people um, that have gone before you? Um, mentorships, some people have the time to do that. So a lot of people don't. Um, so what I thought was, well, maybe I can I can help by, by helping people learn critical listening because that's one of those skills that you don't get from a YouTube video, you know, and it's so critical for mixing to be able to hear where the problems are. You know, you can you can do all the YouTube videos in the world, you can join all the courses, and you'll learn how to fix problems, which is great, and that's obviously hugely important. But if you can't hear where those problems are, then then that's not going to help you in, in learning how to mix. So I figured, well, maybe if I just, you know, lend my ears to people in a way that 
you know, engineers that I had a good relationship with when I was an assistant would lend their ears to the the stuff I was doing. You know, I, I would ask if I had a particularly good relationship with an engineer, I'd say, look, can you listen to this mix that I'm that I'm working on? Give me three things that you'd change. And then I would learn so much about mixing because that stuff that I hadn't heard was a problem because I thought it was done, but I knew I could learn something by playing it to this guy. So really that's what I'm kind of providing is you, you you know you know your mix is good, but you know it's not as good as what you hear on the radio. Then we'll send it into the mix consultancy, and I will give you, you know, I, I provide you with a PDF of a whole load of stuff that I've heard. That's like, well, this, you know, you could improve this. You've got some conflict going on here between this instrument and this instrument. You know, a, a load of things that I can hear. Some ideas on how to fix it. Um, sometimes some production ideas as well if they come to me, and then it just kind of speeds up people's people's learning really because they can take that critical listening experience and advice and and apply what they've learned elsewhere on the net you know about about production and 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 mixing and and it's amazing what what I love about it is there's quite a lot of people that you know that that try it out and they go oh well this is actually really good I really learned quite a lot and then they bring everything they bring all their mixes to me and it's amazing hearing how quickly people get better because they know you know what to listen for now, and they know where the problems lie, and uh, and it's just a really rewarding experience for me to hear people getting so much better so quickly. So um, yeah, hopefully it's something that some of your your readers and the listeners to the podcast will um, you know will be able to take advantage of some point in the future because um, yeah, it it does work. It's a it's a it, you know blowing my own trumpet here, but um, but it does work and it's a good thing. It's it's useful. Sounds like a brilliant service and one that I wish had been around when I was starting out. Thanks ever so much, Dom. It's been great talking to you. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Producer and engineer Dom Morley was my guest on this episode of the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast. If you'd like to know more about Dom, you can visit themixconsultancy.com and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. And just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcasts website page where you can explore what's playing on our other channels. (laughs) 